0: Let's open our Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter seventeen. Chapter seventeen. In this chapter and verse, in chapter eighteen also, we'll be studying about Babylon. The very beginning of Babylon, or Babel, or Babel, as some might say, was associated in the beginning in Genesis chapter eleven with. Uh, Resisting and defying God. And it's no different here. In these two chapters in Revelation, there's a resistance and a defying of God in several aspects. But in this 17th chapter, we're going to find that there are three divisions here I'll give you. The description of the woman. She's pictured here as a woman, and we'll read it in uh, the text here in a moment. The description of the woman verses 1 through 6, the interpretation by the angel, verses 7 through 15, and the destruction of the harlot, this harlot woman, verses 16 through 18. So the description of the woman, verses 1 through 6, and the interpretation by the angel, verses 7 through 15, and then the destruction of the woman, or the harlot, verses 16 through 18. When we start studying about Babylon here, we're going to find that Babylon is seen as a great worldwide, now listen carefully, ecclesiastical, or religious, and political and commercial system. Three different aspects of Babylon. Ecclesiastical, a worldwide church, a corrupt, a false church, and political and a commercial system entwined, these three conditions fully described in uh, chapter 17 and 18, they're developed in chapter 17 and 18. And let me just continue with a little bit of introduction before we get into the verse by verse in the 17th chapter. An ecclesiastical and religious system in rebellion against God and confusion. By the way, Babel means confusion. We'll get to that in a moment. And confusion in the departure from the truth and the name, with the name of mystery. In fact, we'll read in verse 6, Mystery Babylon the Great. And it says, The mother of harlots. And a mother, if she's a mother of harlots, then she has daughters. We're talking about spiritual idolatry and uh, spiritual adultery and spiritual uncleanness all the way through. So her. When it's spoken of in a physical way, it's representing the spiritual uncleanness of this woman. And so that's the ecclesiastical or religious aspect or system that we'll be dealing with. Corrupt false religion. A worldwide church. Now then, the political and civil system is also in rebellion against God. We found that the the beast... And the false prophet and uh, having to take the mark of the beast. And then the commercial and financial system is the third one in rebellion against the purposes and rights of, of God, bearing the mark of the beast in order to buy and sell. So the commercial Babylon comes into the picture. As we study chapter 17 and 18, we'll point out some things that show you, uh, like the kings, that would be the political. And the merchants would be the commercial. And the shipmasters. And we're going to find the kings and the merchants together, which shows that they're both controlled by the religious aspect. And when we get uh, uh, involved in this, you'll find that these three things will come out very clearly. So let's identify. Ecclesiastical Babylon is apostate Christendom. Uh, united with uh, ecumenicalism all over the world, and probably united with, uh, with Rome, with, uh, the, uh, with ca- uh, Catholicism. And it's been ever the move of Catholicism to unite all Protestant denominations. You see, Protestants came out of Catholicism under Martin Luther, and Baptists were never a part of it. But now, a few years back, they had great... Uh, church conventions that were headed up with Catholics and Protestants and, and Jews and made up of Baptists and Methodists and all kinds of denominations trying to get them all together to be all unified in a church. And by the way, the purpose is still the same. We have that same purpose at work today. We have many churches contributing to that end that will end up that way. So you have not only apostate Christendom, but you have it unified with Catholicism during the tribulation period. And uh, it's identified in this chapter, the 17th and 18th. Now then, you have also commercial Babylon, which is a gigantic world system of business. You know, we've got these, uh, this uh, world system of business. Uh, in fact... Were we not trying to get China to join in just recently when the, when the representative was over here and we were uh, shouldering up to him and patting him on the back? Yeah, we want you in this world trade uh, situation. And so all these things are leading up to that. Uh, so it's a gigantic... Uh, commercial Babylon is a gigantic world system of business and trade. Uh, Intimately allied with apostate Christendom. So the church and commerce will be joined. So you're going to have all these things involved. And then political Babylon is the federated head of the empire of the beast during the tribulation. And all three will center in Rome during the great tribulation. In fact, in this chapter we'll find that uh, it says in verse 9, And here is the mind which hath wisdom the seven heads or seven mountains on which the woman sitteth seven mountains are the seven hills of Rome on which the eternal city is built. So there's a lot to discuss as we progress along in our teachings on this. And a lot of things hard to be understood. But I think that they'll come out as we uh, look at them uh, verse by verse and try to point out as much as we can about uh, the things that we've already mentioned in our introduction here. So let's look at chapter seventeen, verse one. It says, "There came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials." Now, remember, the last vial was poured out uh, in this chapter, in this sixteenth uh, chapter, in verse seventeen. The seventh angel poured out his vial into the air. That's the sphere of, of Satan and his power and dominion. So from then on, uh, this. These judgments that are taking place are under the seventh vial. Or the seventh bowl of wrath, we'll call it. Bowl of wrath. And so there came one of them, one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, John says, talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. With, and we'll read down through verse 6. With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. The kings of the earth, that shows their illicit relationship, the the political relationship to to the religious relationship. The kings of the earth, see. Kings have to do with politics and governments and so on. And the the corrupt uh, religion is in view. It says, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. The Bible speaks in the Old Testament of, of spiritual uh, fornication or adultery. Of all the, those that uh, were involved with uh, Israel. Or Israel being involved with uh, the wicked nations round about them. That they had left God. That they were, in a sense, going out and seeking another lover. Hosea says that you've gone after your lover's and have not found them. So, all of these things come into focus here. Now, I realize that um, some of the things here are pretty explicit, and yet I believe all of us here are grown, grown up enough, in fact, you wouldn't have to reach the second grade till you know some of these things I'm talking about, so don't think I'm speaking out of turn when I go ahead and try to be as plain about it as I can. Because a lot of our children in the second and third grade are taught, taught the things that... Uh, We're talking about here. So it says, "...with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication." So her influence has involved uh, more than just the kings, and the leaders in that time, and the rulers in that time, but the people of the earth have become involved and have fallen for her uh, false teaching as a church. Or as a worldwide church. In verse 3, So he carried me away in the Spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy. Blasphemy is a term that has to do with the spiritual aspect. And they blaspheme God, having the seven heads and ten horns. Now then, the seven heads are seven forms of government. And we'll have that more identified in this chapter. When we get down to verses 12 and on, you'll have a lot of things spoken of. In fact, in verse 7 you you find some of it. But the seven heads are seven forms of government and the ten horns are royal personages or uh, powers or kings of royalty. Now then, so I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and abominations of the earth. By the way, you notice in our Bible all these things are in capitals. They're capitalized. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood. Now, here's the connection with the true saints of God. You'll see that she's false. I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Now then, we'll find the woman identified. I mean, that's the description of her. And we'll find the interpretation of all this by the angel in verses 7 through. Uh 15. Now, the, this beast, you have here a vision of the false church. You have the beast that carried the woman is the political head of the Roman Empire, the revived Roman Empire during that time, and the head of the federation of the nations, and this is indicated by the seven heads and the ten horns. It's indicated that that's uh, who she's, is carried by the beast is, that carried this woman. So the beast that carries the religious aspect of this Babylon, Babylon speaks of confusion of, of it speaks of commercial and political and ecclesiastical confusion and how that she merits the doom that is pronounced upon her in this chapter 17 and 18. and all three aspects of Babylon will fall. The false church will fall. The, the commercial aspect will fall. The uh, political head will fall. And in chapter 19, when Jesus comes back in power and great glory, He will take charge and the beast will be taken and cast into the uh, pit. In fact, if you look at chapter 19 and verse... Uh, In verse 20 it says, And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet. All of them were going to meet their doom when Jesus comes in power and great glory in the 19th chapter. Verse 20 says, 19 verse 20, And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him. And which, uh, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that had worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. So you have the beast and the false prophet cast into the lake of fire. And then the devil is put in chains in the 20th chapter for a thousand years. And when the thousand years is over, the devil, the dragon, the devil is loose for a season. To go out and try to deceive the nations after the thousand years is finished. And then he meets his doom in the 20th chapter. Look, 20th chapter and verse 10 it says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. They had been there for a thousand years. That shows you that uh, judgment of God is not uh, annihilation of people. And of, of, of wicked powers. But it's, they've been there a thousand years. That's quite a long time. If hell was no longer than a thousand years, that would be enough, wouldn't it? But it's a continuous suffering for those who have defied God and, and spoken evil in the face of God and have done what is spoken of in these chapters. Now let's look in the 17th chapter where we were reading. <clears throat> If you notice verse 5, it says, Upon our head was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. How many times have people uh, said in the terms of Catholicism, let's go back to the mother church? Or the churches need to be drawn into the mother church? How many times have uh, people of various denominations almost uh, fallen for that idea of making a one-world church already. And how many do you see round about us that are falling for all of the uh, bait, so to speak, that is put out to try to promote that kind of a, a worldwide religion? Now, don't think I'm trying to be cruel or anything. But you know, the promise keepers, I know there's people go and they have a good time, they come back all lifted up. But their idea, if you read some of the material, they say we want to break down the walls of denominationalism. That's what they want to do. They don't want to be identified as any denomination. They want to have everybody to assemble together and they're promoting, some of them, Without the mind toward it, I'm sure, many good Christian men are participating. But that is the first reason that I would have nothing to do with it myself. Because I know that the the denominations and religions and divisions are here for a purpose. Because it identifies people with what they stand for. Now then, I don't want to... to, uh, Throw away the name of being a Baptist. I'm sure a Methodist does not want to throw the name away away of being a Methodist. And I'm not going to get into the difference between Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterians, and so on. And I know there's good in all of these denominations, and they try to promote the right thing, as far as they see it. But I I don't want to sacrifice that and say, no, I'm not going to be called a Baptist any longer. I'm just going to be called a, a Christian, and I'll be one of you whatever it is, ecumenical, non-denomination, charismatic, whatever it is. I'm not going to do that. And I don't believe God expects us to do that. I believe He expects us to stand for what the Bible teaches, even if it crosses denominational lines, and even if, it, if some people that are even good Christian people differ in opinion. And I think it's time that you and I take our stand in this direction, there's a lot of other organizations. That's just one. The ecumenical movement movement in general is to make a worldwide church. They say, why don't you Methodists and you Baptists and you Presbyterians and all, just forget it all and let's just all be a universal church. You know, the only time that there will be a, a universal church is when Jesus comes and it's all assembled to Him uh, together and it will be united then. In a, in a special sense of people out of all denominations, if they're saved and born again and they're a child of God, whether they're in church, out of church, whether they're Baptist, Catholic, Protestant, or Jew, if they're saved and they're child of God, they'll make up that glory church. But meanwhile, there are local New Testament churches where we should take our stand as we understand what the Bible teaches and take it right there. But so, it says, and I saw the woman, look at verse uh, 6, and I saw the woman drunken with the blood of saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. We've already studied that it, during the tribulation period, the, the tribulation martyrs will be there. There were martyrs in the past times as well. And all through the dark ages, there were all the onslaught of the of. The Roman Empire or Roman leaders or kings that persecuted Christians. And then also, there was Catholicism that persecuted Christians during the Dark Ages. And the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs were found in her. I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration... And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. I'm going to tell you about her. And he begins to tell. He says, The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. So we've already studied about when they'll go into perdition, haven't we, in the nineteenth chapter? But here she. She's the same one, or this beast is the same one that comes out of the bottomless pit. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. Remember we told you the beast that was and is not and yet is. Rome was in power. Now we're talking about the Roman Empire now, not Roman Catholicism. But Rome, the Rome, Rome was in power even in the days of Jesus. Remember? And until 476 A.D. And then she was not and has not been since. So that's why we say that this one that was in power and is not now has not been since 5... Of 476 AD, that one that now does not exist will come into existence in the tribulation period, and that's why he says, and yet is, because they're going to be, the, it'll be the revival of the, the Roman Empire. Remember when we studied in the 13th chapter, we talked about the seven heads, seven forms of government. And the ten horns representing ten kings. And we went back to the book of Daniel and showed you how that this beast will take on the beast, the first one in Revelation 13, the political power, the revived Roman Empire, the head of the revived Roman Empire, will take on the form of all of these others that are seen in the book of Daniel, we read in verse 2, the beast that I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth was as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power. So the dragon is identified as the devil. And he gives this power, political power, during the tribulation period. Now then, back in chapter 17 again. So it says in verse 8, uh, the last part of verse 8. When they behold the beast that was. That was up until five, uh, 476 A.D. That's the beast that was. And is not. So even, even to the time of the tribulation period. John could say. Or the, the announcement to John was is not. And yet is. And we're going to see that there will be a revival. Of that. Of uh, Roman Empire. Now, verse 9 says, And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. The seven heads are are seven mountains. It doesn't say... In other words, it's plain enough here that it says that the seven heads are the seven mountains. So uh, you don't have to take my word for it. That's just exactly what it said the interpretation. And the seven mountains are, are spoken of as really hills the seven hills of Rome on which the eternal city is built. So this will be the center of that power. Religious, political, and commercial will be centered in Rome. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come, and when he cometh he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he even he is the eighth, and is of the seventh, and goeth into perdition. Which one goes into perdition? The one we just talked about. That political beast, we read it in Revelation 19, verse 20, where he will be taken when Christ comes. And he'll go into perdition. What are these five that it's talking about in verse 10? There are seven kings. Five are fallen. Babylon was fallen. Medo-Persia is fallen. Greece is fallen. Egypt is fallen. And Syria is fallen. And then it says, and one is, and the other is not yet come. He's speaking of the one that is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seventh, and goeth into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are what? They're ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. So the, this political power will permit these ten kings to be a federation of nations. And he'll permit them to have power what? One hour. It speaks of a period of time. It doesn't mean one hour, 60 minutes. But one hour with the beast. So there will be a short time that they will have power with the beast. And we're going to continue to read in what happens to them that things are going to fall apart. Both for the uh, apostate Christendom and the uh, political head and powers and this federation of, of kings is going to fall apart. In this chapter, we'll see it. And then later on, the commercial aspect in the next chapter will be seen. Both political and commercial will continue in the 18th chapter. In the 17th chapter, we actually see the doom of the apostate church. And in chapters 18, we have, in chapter 18 we have the doom of commercial and political Babylon. Those two aspects will meet therein. But let's go ahead and read in verse uh, uh, 13. Now these have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. They're going to be united. This confederacy will be united under the beast. And they'll give their power and their strength, their support. You know, we have these uh, nations that are together now, like NATO. They're all giving their support to each other. And, uh, of course, we have the United Nations, too. But there will be this this federation of nations in Europe in the tribulation period. And listen, what they'll do, they'll be under the head of Rome, at, and indicated by the beast, this political head, and political power, and they'll give their support. They'll have one mind and give their power and their strength unto the beast. And these shall make war. This is what's going to happen in the 19th chapter. By the way, it's just telling you in here, uh, chapter seven, 17, verse 14, it's going to tell that they'll make war with the lamb, but that... That war doesn't come until the 19th chapter, when we see Jesus coming back in power and great glory. And that's when the war is made. That's the battle of Armageddon. But it announces it here. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. That's what we see over in the 19th chapter. He's going to overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. It's said in the 19th chapter that He is Lord of lords and King of kings and Lord of lords. And they that are with Him, when the, those that come with Him from heaven, are called and chosen and faithful. That's who the Jesus is going to bring with Him, isn't He? When He comes in the 19th chapter in power and great glory, He will bring the armies of heaven followed Him. When He comes upon that white stallion and says the armies of heaven followed Him. Who are the armies of heaven? The saints, the chosen, the righteous, the faithful if you go over there, and by the way, I can get carried over there right quick because uh, it's so wonderful. But if you'll notice uh, in the 19th chapter, it says uh, in verse 11, we'll read verse 11. I saw heaven open, behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he did judge and make war. Now then, heaven opens and he comes from heaven. This is Christ on a white horse. His eyes were as a flame of fire. Here he's described in verse twelve. On his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. The Lord Jesus Christ is, without a doubt, identified. And then it says in verse fourteen, "And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean." Now then, if you drop back to verse. 7 and 8, it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife hath made herself ready and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. So when Jesus comes and this army of heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, verse 14, it's going to be the The redeemed that's coming with him. Now back in 17, verse 14 again. And see how much sense this verse will make. Verse 14. These shall make war with the Lamb. That is this federation of nations under the head of uh, this political beast power. These shall make war with the Lamb and the Lamb shall overcome them. That's what we're going to find in that 19th chapter. For he's Lord of lords and King of kings and they that are with him we said the armies of heaven, they that are with Him, what are they? They're the called and they're the chosen and faithful. The redeemed are coming with Jesus. I heard a long time ago, I was teaching something to this uh, respect or along this line. And there was one of the ladies in the church over in the Piatone, Oklahoma. She says, but you know I can't ride a horse. The armies of heaven followed him and look upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Well it won't make any difference because I think that this is I believe all this is symbolical language, just showing you Jesus is the conqueror. He's seen as coming on a white stallion to show that he is a conqueror, and he and he's seen with an army that are pure and clean, and they're coming with him in his support, and that's really what it's all about. So the symbols represent what's going to happen. So the saints of God are coming back to, with Jesus from, from the heavens to the earth. He's going to take His own with Him first. And then what He's going to do, He's going to bring them back. He's coming for His saints and then He's coming with His saints. Jude says, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of His saints. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says... He's coming for His saints because the dead in Christ shall rise and the living believers shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. We're with Him even when we come back to this earth. So this verse says, and it says a lot about it. Now then, verse... Uh, 15 says, And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, are peoples, and multitudes, and nations, and tongues. I want you to notice this. Back in verse uh, 1. in The last part of it. Come hither. You have it in the middle of verse 1. Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Now then, down to verse 15. And he saith unto me, The waters, the many waters, the waters which thou sawest, where the horse sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And this teaches that the influence of this idolatrous, satanic system, false church, apostate Christendom, and all this combined of Babylon is universal because her influence is upon what? Peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the many waters represents her authority over all the world. Because in verse 1 it says, she sits upon many waters. And in verse 15, he saith unto me "The waters which thou sawest where the horse sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So it shows a universal influence we're going to see a universal influence of apostate and false Christianity linked with Catholicism and whatever else is involved, a conglomeration of religions all together. Get us all together. We're all going to the same place. I'm afraid not. Because the Bible teaches that there's a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And the Bible says, except a man be born again, he cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus himself said that. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one cometh unto the Father but by me. So he excludes a lot of others that have other ways of getting to heaven. You say, Preacher, do you believe there are people that are saved and in uh in uh, the Methodist Church certainly do I believe there's people that are saved in the in the Church of Christ? I believe I, do you believe there are people that are saved in the Catholic Church? I certainly do, but a lot of them in spite of what it teaches because they've received Christ they believed on Christ and so there's some that are saved in all these churches churches and by the way, in the next chapter we're told that even in the tribulation, they will be called upon. God will say, Come out of her, my people. There will be His people that are come out of this. Look in chapter 18, verse, verse uh, 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. So there's going to, even in the tribulation, there's going to be a call to separate. Not to get together, but separate. Boy, I'll tell you, people got this idea. You've got to get it all together. And everybody's got to be of one. No. The unity that Jesus is praying for in the 17th of John in his great high priestly prayer will finally be realized. But only when Jesus comes again will we be unified in that fullest sense of the word. Now, he wants us to be unified in a local church now. He says that we're to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace in the local church atmosphere. We want unity in the local church. But you do not have unity when you have rival denominations and rival beliefs and rival uh, uh, cults round about you. You don't have unity. The church is spoken of as a church militant. Jesus said... Upon this rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Paul told Timothy, he says, Thou therefore endure hardness as what? A good soldier of Jesus Christ. What do soldiers do? They fight, don't they? They try to win the battle. And brother, a local church and its members are to be soldiers. And it tells us to endure the hardness that we have to do. Well, I'm afraid that today people would rather surrender than to, than to fight. A lot of them, brother, join them. Say, if you can't win them, join them. Well, that that may be some people's idea, but there's a lot of things I don't join. Some people wonder why Brother Joyce doesn't belong to everything. I just don't. I just don't because I had convictions a long time ago about those things. When I first started preaching, I. Was I was, uh, well, they had me as a chaplain, so to speak, or the VFW and the American Legion. I belonged to VFW and American Legion, Volunteer Fire Department, Rio Dosa Downs, the Boy Scouts and the Assistant uh, Scoutmaster and all these things. And I didn't have time to see my wife, to see my kids. So finally, I just took all of it and I said, I'm no longer this in the VFW. I love the VFW. There's nothing wrong with it. And the people that got time for it, that's fine. And the American Legion, I said, I'm not, not that either. And the Volunteer Fire Department, I quit that. And the other part, it, as well as I loved it, Boy Scouts. Because they teach boys to respect things. And we need more of them. I think it's a very good program. But you can't belong to everything. There's a lot of good in a lot of things. But anyway, and then there are other things in the religious world. That they want you to join. Join the ministerial Alliance, Join this group. uh, Join the promise keepers. Join uh, the Gideons. Gideons do a wonderful work. Of course, they won't let preachers in the Gideons. You know that, don't they? They want the good men of the church, but they don't want the preachers because they don't want that kind of thing. Which is a good, as far as the organization is concerned. And we have the Gideons here every year. Don't misunderstand me. They do a good work. And we give a... For the size of church we have, we give as good a donation as uh, most anyone does for this size, percentage-wise. I think this year it was near $300-something dollars, or something like that for just a small group we had here. Just a plate offering. But anyway, be that as it may, you can't do all the good there is. You know, Jesus came. He walked the shores of Galilee and trod the Judean hills. He healed the sick, cleansed the lepers, raised the dead. And he preached to some and he says, you will not come to me that you might have life. He didn't win the world. He came to die to save the world. You and I to tell the world about him. We're to preach the gospel. But that doesn't mean that everybody that we preach to and that our convictions are going to come down right with everybody. So what are you going to do? Just say, well, because I can't be real popular and I can't win the whole world, I'm not going to win any? No. Let's do what we can. Let's do what we're supposed to do. So anyway, look at verse 15. This universal influence of this uh, of Babylon, the great, the mystery Babylon, the great mother of harlots and abominations of the earth, as it says in verse 5, but verse 15 says, And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest where the horse sitteth. Now, that means she controls and has influence uh, over what? The peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues, a universal influence. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore. They're going to, for a little while, all of this is going to be rosy. I mean, there's going to be political, commercial, and religious babbling all entwined, and it's all going to be one rosy picture. But then what's going to happen? These shall hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Verse 17. You say, what is God doing about all this? Look at verse 17. It tells you.